Hey, girl. Girl, your friend is here. Look, I'm so thrilled that you got to hang out with Damien for a little bit. Oh, my. I was like starstruck when I got. We, we, we did this over Zoom, you guys. We did this interview with Damien Eccles over Zoom. He's. Where is he now? They just moved to New Orleans. Yeah, so they were in New Orleans. It looks like beautiful and cool, even, even in the little Zoom. So I'm glad yeah. that you got to interact with him a little bit. I've been talking about him and like gushing over him for so long. So it's nice for you to like experience the warmth. Totally. Well, also, like, he's got this big, bushy beard, like, that's really, like, down to his chest. And, like, really he long. doesn't look like what I remember him to look like at all, you know? Yeah, yeah no, he looks nothing like when he did uh, in that, that we see of him in West of Memphis. And he's also, he's, like, he's finding his look, and I'm here for yeah. that. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Damien, let me know how you did that, girl. I, I'm still on my journey. I am still very much on my journey He can that. wear it all. He always looks great. He always looks cool. <laughs> just jealous, you know? What are you going to do? He wins again. So here you go, you guys. Here's our interview with Damien Eccles. He was just lovely. It was so fun to get to see the yeah. two of you bicker <laughs> and be, you know, adorable with each other. And, you know, it was such a, it was a very fun way to spend an hour. I, wasn't it? Good. I'm yes. glad. Um, yeah. And if you haven't already, please listen to our two-part episode of West of Memphis. Yeah. Uh, and we'll say a quick goodbye at the end. Yes. All right. Here we go. There. Wait. There you are. I got it. Yeah. <gasps> hey. hey, big brother. Well, How's it going? All things considered, pretty good. So, Patrick and Damien, you have never met. Now you are. We have Patrick, not. Damien, Damien, Patrick. Hello. Nice to meet you. You too. And thank you for doing a show on this, for helping us get the word about this out there. Oh, we're so excited. Your beard is gorgeous. <laughs> thank you. It feels horrendous in this humidity. <laughs> I can't get any longer than this or like when I try to go to sleep on it, it just feels like I'm sleeping on like crushed up saltine crackers. I forgot that like one of the things about growing up in the South is there's no such thing as a good hair day, especially when you're (laughs) this far South, like in New Orleans, every single day there's so much humidity in the air. It feels like you've. I mean, even a beard, it feels like you've got a clown wig on your face. Oh, uh, and you guys are in New Orleans now, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I have a million questions. I've been following your journey since I was, my God, like a teenager, I feel like. So it's really an incredible thing for me to get to actually talk to you. Thank you. And, you know, that's yeah. one of the things I always tell people. Like, I hear that from people all the time that'll say, you know, people have like the generation that came after mine. And they'll say, you know, I grew up knowing about the documentaries and knowing about your case. And the thing that I always say to him, and it really is 100% true, is if it wasn't for those people, you know, people paying attention to it, people for, you know, following it, the state would have murdered me and swept this under the rug. So it it really is people paying attention and caring about this that saved my life. I mean, that is such an, uh, I mean, I know that that is true. It's just a really, it's one of those things that I feel like, well, I know that, but I don't want you to know that, (laughs) you know, it's better for us if you don't know that. And we, I mean, we've been screaming about this forever and everyone always wants to know how you and I became friends. So I tell my version of it, which is that I went to your art show and January of one year, Mike was away. I went up to Lori and started talking at her about how much I love December because of my birthday and then our anniversary. And then I knew it was your birthday and your anniversary. And my story is, and I'm convinced it's the truth, is that she said, she grabbed my hand and said, you have to meet Damien and took me back into the green room. And then I think the listeners want to hear like what your version of that is. Okay. This will sound insane, but... The very first memory that I have of you, period, is seeing (laughs) you sitting across from me at the table at Emilio's, that Italian restaurant down in Soho. Because we went to dinner that night. That's That's the first memory I have. I remember you sitting at the table. But, you know, keep in mind that, like, whenever I got out, I had been, like, I've actually been doing work with, uh, a doctor who is studying like what long-term solitary confinement does to the human brain. And one of the things we didn't realize until after I'd gotten out was I had like severe brain trauma. Like I lacked facial recognition, voice recognition. I mean, even the fact that I remember like the the night that we met is saying something because normally At that time period, I would meet the same people two or three times. Even if I went to dinner with them the night before, I would still be reintroducing myself to them the next day 
because I just could not retain any information. So you're saying I should feel lucky that you even remember who I am to this day? Yeah, yeah, because usually if <laughs> I always tell people, usually if you if I remember you the first time we met, it's a bad sign. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> Damien, I'm curious, and before we get too far into this, I want to know if like anything is off limits. I don't want to ask you anything inappropriate or in anyway re-traumatize you in no, any way nothing that i can think of off the top of my head yeah you know, most of that stuff now to be honest it doesn't really bother me anymore that wasn't always the case you know whenever i first got out for a while it felt like you know i was doing interviews non-stop i lived on the road yeah. for two straight years traveling pretty much around the world doing speaking engagements and i started to feel like the only thing i'm ever talking about is this case so why yeah. did I even get out if it's still going to consume my whole life? So, yeah. but what happened is as time went on, you know, it's kind of like everything else. It gets harder and harder to remember, you know, because of the, the memory thing. So in a way that's almost like a blessing in disguise. But when yeah. I, when I try to think about stuff like that now, for the most part, it seems like it was literally a lifetime ago. Like it happened to someone else. And, yep. and it's, you know, I don't focus on it all the time and it doesn't really bother me if anybody asks about it anymore. It just faded with time. Hmm. One of my big questions is about solitary confinement. You know, I don't I think those of us who have not experienced it only have like a, a movie version of what it is. Mm-hmm. Can you would do you mind talking a little bit about like what that actually is and how much time you spent in, in that? Well, I think it depends from place to place like from prison to prison, uh, you know, it, it can depend on a lot of different things. Like, for example, I was in a super maximum security unit prison, which there's only like a very small handful of these that even exist in the United States. They're, they're like the most secure of the secure, where you come in contact with, with almost no one. The only people that I was, I was allowed to have a visitor once a week for three hours a week and it had to be an immediate family member, no one else. But I was only given that luxury because I was on death row. Like if you are on death row, you didn't even have that. A lot of times you had people in there who hadn't, you know, seen anyone, but another prison guard for years. So I was fortunate in, in that, but you are in a cell 24 hours a day. They say that you're allowed one hour a day out for recreation time. But what that entails is they take you out of one cell and put you in another cell. You know, it's not like you're with anybody else and, or playing basketball or, or anything like that. You're still in just another cell. Uh, outside or still inside? Both. If it's like, even if it's outside, it's not really outside. It's, it's in sort of like, like if you grow up in the South or in farmland and you know what a grain silo is, it was kind of like a grain silo, you know, just concrete walls and a metal roof above it so you know that's miserable in the summertime anyway like the day i left arkansas it was like 114 and had not been below 130 days straight so you know that's not very pleasant to begin with so you have you know a lot of people say why would i go out there you know why not just stay in here in this cell so um your your shower is in your cell like there's a drain in the middle of the floor there's a spigot on the wall uh, that's your shower. You never leave for that. Whenever they feed you or whenever they give you your mail, there's a little slot in a solid steel door that they open, push stuff through and then close it again. And do you have light in there? You do. You have a light. And this is one of the things they'll use to, uh, torture people with actually, they'll use it for like sleep deprivation, stuff like that is they have this like brilliant fluorescent light you know, like something that would light up an entire office space secured into the wall and they flip it off and on whenever they want to. So they'll, you know, use it, wait till people are asleep and flip it to wake them up or whatever it is. Uh, but it's, it's technically supposed to be turned off for like four hours a day, but they make up the rules yeah. as they go along. And you spent, how much time did you spend in that environment? A little over eight years. I was locked up for 18 so a little bit over, almost the last was working on the ninth year whenever I walked out. So almost I'd been in there for the major part of a decade, the day that I walked out and into the streets of Manhattan, which was part of what caused the psychological overload 
you know, just all the sensory input all of a sudden and have to figure yeah. out. You know, and keep in mind at this point, it's not just that for me. It's that I haven't even seen a computer since 1986. So I'm not <laughs> used to like even ATM machines. To me, ATM machines were kind of like alien technology. You know, the first time I had to think about how to use one of those, it was it was petrifying. So there was all that kind of stuff added on top of it, too. You know, trying to figure out how to use a cell phone or a computer or, you know, just just navigate. Even if it's just through taxi, you know, if you've spent the major part of your life sealed inside a box, then even figuring stuff like that out is incredibly overwhelming. I remember being in Salem and you would like practice paying with a credit card. Like it's things like that, that people really don't think about when they hear about how great the, these stories are, which they are, but it's like, there's, uh, there's also a major adjustment. That oh yeah. And happens. you don't, like, you, you don't understand the rules of the world. So, and, and you're also almost starving to death on a soul level for any kind of sensory interaction or input. So I found myself doing things constantly just because I could like every time I passed by a Coke machine, I had to get something out of it. Wow. Not because I was thirsty or not because I wanted one, but just the fact that I can use a Coke machine. You know, I can have this just because I want it. So I, I did, I, I started ordering things like I had never seen Amazon before or any of that sort of stuff. So I started ordering stuff from Amazon like every single day just because so it would come, you know, like I would get packages. I didn't realize the whole shipping thing. You know, this was before right. prime. I didn't realize that I was, you know, accumulating debt yet. Lori's like, why are there a hundred charges for four ninety nine on the credit card yep. over and over again? Oh, and it was it was like the most horrible stuff. Like every single day a new Danzig C D would appear in the mail or Something or, or fans. I was obsessed with fans whenever I first got out, just because of the white noise uh-huh. like did something to my nervous system, soothed it in some way. So I had to have big fans in every room. Oh my god! <laughs> Before we go back, will you tell us like what is happening right now? We filed, and I can't remember the exact date. I am horrible about this, just because we're in the process of moving. Which July nineteenth, J- July nineteenth, <laughs> we filed uh, a motion with the courts. I mean, it's kind of hard to even know where to start, just because this goes back for at least a year now, almost maybe even two years. I'm not even a hundred percent positive when we started this process, but we started asking the state, could we run a new kind of DNA testing? Uh, that they didn't have even at the time that we got out of prison. You know, we they, they found there's a new kind of testing that they can use now where they said they could even get DNA from like the knots in the ligatures. They said, if you can, uh, if you untie that knot, the skin cells of the person who tied that knot will be inside the ligature. Wow. And they can even test those now. So there would be nobody's DNA there except the person who tied that knot. So we started pushing at least a year ago, maybe almost two years ago, to have this testing done. We started asking the state, can we have this done? And they said, yeah, sure, we're not going to contest that. And we would wait for the evidence to arrive at the lab and never would. So then we would go back to the prosecutor and it was like they kept like punting the ball to each other. Like he would say, well, I'm, the crime lab must have it. I don't know. You're going to have to get in touch with them. So we would get in touch with the crime lab and then they would say, no, we don't have it. The police department picked it back up and took it somewhere. You're going to have to get in touch with them. So we would end up getting it. I mean, they give us the runaround nonstop while telling us, yeah, sure, you can do the testing. But we had this nonstop runaround going on for at least a year solid. Finally, it reached a point where we we FOI'd the police department saying we want to know what evidence you actually have, where it's at the chain of custody, all this sort of thing. And it's a federal law that they have to answer that. They have to respond to it. They never did even respond to it. So we found out later, they're already breaking federal laws with that. We find out later that uh, the prosecutor did an interview with a local reporter like a couple of weeks before we filed the FOI and that the prosecutor said to the reporter that he was planning on asking for a court order to destroy the evidence anyway. And this is the evidence that air quotes would that they hold that they say can prove your guilt. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So uh, we know that we know that the police department started saying that one of their excuses is, well, we believe that the evidence may have been destroyed in a fire that happened, you know, several years ago. So Mara Leverett, who's a reporter in Arkansas, she wrote uh, Boys on the Tracks and Devil's Knot. 
not our case. Oh yeah. She, yeah, she's in the, in the documentary. Yes. She FOI'd the fire department. Uh, I don't know if it was the city fire department or the, the county fire department, one or the other. She FOI'd them to get um, a list of all the fires that had taken places in city buildings within the past decade. They responded and says there has only been one. It was inside a building that housed uh, chlorine tanks. The fire was extinguished by an employee with a fire extinguisher before we ever even got there. And there was no damage reported. So we know that they're lying about that. We have this thing that we say on True Crime Obsessed, which is like, let the women do the work. Like, what a smart what a smart woman to like think like where let's find out if there were any fires. Yes. I would never have thought of that. Me either. Me either. But I guess that's why they say that what is it? He who acts as his own attorney has a fool for a client. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's yeah. amazing to me that they haven't realized whether it's lost or destroyed or whatever, that they don't realize that if the evidence is destroyed, then it's in breach of the Alford plea. And exactly. it's like, they're not thinking too far ahead. And I know David, you always say like, well, that's cause you know, I'm using logic and they're not. And so, but it's still, it's baffling to me that on such a grand scale with so many eyes on them, they still are not thinking what they think we're not going to notice. Well, you have to keep in mind, this has kind of been their strategy from day one of this case. Like every time new evidence would come up every time new witnesses would come up every time somebody would recant their testimony and say that the police had forced them to lie. Anytime any of these things would pop up in the news, they would just basically tuck their head down like a turtle and hope that, you know, something else will happen that will get people's attention onto the next thing in the news. This will be forgotten about. And, you know, eventually it'll blow over and we won't have to do anything about it. That's been their strategy from day one. And most of the time it works for them. You know, there's so much stuff out there to grab people's attentions that most of the time they're eventually going to lose interest and go on to the next, you know, news cycle or whatever it is. For some reason, we were incredibly fortunate in that this case has maintained people's attention. And what I've been saying now is, is, asking people, please don't stop paying attention. I know there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in the world that's kind of vying for your energy, but just like it was your attention that saved our lives when I was in there, it's also your attention that will cause this case to finally be unraveled. You know, it's like in sports, wherever they're, you know, sports teams will say when they play at home, they have an extra person on the field. It's the people paying attention to this case that are our extra man on the field. So just stick with us. Keep the pressure on them. We're asking people to write to the the state. Um, Jillian's been putting out the addresses on social media. Uh, And right now, that's all we can do is just keep applying pressure and, and not moving on to the next thing. Because the point is, if they don't have the evidence that, quote, proves your guilt, then the Alfred plea is vacated. Is that right? That's that was one of. Well, it's kind of, you know, here's the thing about the law is for every law on the book. There is almost always two other laws that contradict it. This is why attorneys, uh-huh. whenever attorneys go to law school, so many of them uh, get their earlier degrees or get their minors in philosophy, because a lot of the stuff comes down to who argues the better point. You know, yeah. So, really, especially in Arkansas, there has been no precedent for a case like this ever. So, it's like we are really in uncharted waters, and it's going to come down to who has the best argument because they're going to do like they always do and argue no harm, no foul. You know, they took this deal, whatever, but they did agree. Whenever we took this deal, they agreed that they would work with us to keep, you know, keep this case going. If we came up with DNA evidence, they would do the testing on it. And we're even offering to pay for it. We're not asking the state to pay for anything. You know, what they agreed to that. They agreed to testing. They agreed to talk to new witnesses. They agreed to look at anything we brought forward to them. And not only have they, you know, been in flagrant disregard of that, but they're also now like admitting openly to destroying evidence. Yeah. 
I think that that's not a thing that people know. That's not a thing that I knew. My guess was that when you guys accepted the Alfred plea, the state still looked at you three as guilty. Yes. And, and to me, I, you know, I say this in our coverage that this all feels like it comes down to money for me. The It feels to me like the big fear on the part of the state is that you guys will be able to sue them for the millions and millions of dollars that you were rightfully entitled to. And so it's surprising for me to hear you say that they were open to you guys bringing them new evidence that they were open to saying, we're going to say that you're guilty, but we're going to act as though maybe you aren't. That's surprising to me. Well, they said it and then never did it. So they'd say like, yeah, sure. And then, you know, they'd be handed this evidence and all this research with that Lord of the Rings money on a silver platter and then not do anything (laughs) with it. So they just say whatever it takes for like, this will appease them for a little bit. And hopefully by the time anyone gets what, like no one will care anymore. They just like, yes, everybody. You know, I think they actually thought that you know, once again, it's like do the smallest amount that you have to possibly do and then give it some time and this will blow over and people will forget about it and it'll go away. That is, you know, 100% the same mind frame that they've had since the very beginning. They thought once that deal was over, this problem was going to go away and they wouldn't have to think about it anymore. Yeah. yeah, because I think the thing, like the one of the calls to action here is like if we keep the pressure on and we keep writing and we keep, you know, publicly saying that we want to see this evidence, you know, mm-hmm. then the idea is that if 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 it proves that what we all know, which is that you guys are innocent, that then not only would you get what you're entitled to, but then maybe we could find the actual killer. Exactly. Exactly right. You know, because yeah. like I said, it's they're wanting to do DNA testing on parts of the crime scene that there is no way that anyone's DNA is going to be there except for the person who participated. So this is the biggest opportunity that we have ever been given to actually solve this case, but they're not interested in solving this case. Right. Of course. Um, Can you tell the listeners a little bit about the judge who accepted the Alford plea? Because he is, his name is Judge Lacer, and he is the guy who's reading this motion, right? It's being submitted to him. And we, when we covered it in the doc, and like I hadn't watched West of Memphis since I, we were going to screenings about it, me and you and Mike and Lori, and you guys would do talks after. So I hadn't seen it in a long time. And there was a lot. It's like, I really realized how much Eddie Vedder and I have in common. But one of the things that we have in common is that he s- said in this very moving way, like the judge didn't have to say everything he said at the end, mm-hmm. saying like, this is a tragedy. He could have just said, accepted, okay, like sweep it under the rug. Everybody shut up about it. But he said, it's a tragedy on all sides. And he said, maybe this can, you know, right some of the wrongs. And it's that outside help that really did this. Like there are things that he said in that moment, 10 years ago, August 19th to the day. So this is, you know, whenever this comes out like August 19th is the 10 year anniversary of your release so he is the person who's reading these motions now well we're still waiting to hear that like he could be the person that hears it just because he was the judge over the case but I think there are three judges counting him who it could possibly be given to to review it uh, him and two others So there's a good chance that he will be the judge who presides over it just because he was over the case when we were finally released, who presided over the deal. But at the same time, it could still potentially go to two other people also, um, of which we know absolutely nothing about. Who who gets to decide who who decides that? I have no idea. (laughs) And and how come Burnett was everything was going on his desk before we voted him out? So like how now there are three other three people who can like I just don't understand. I don't get it. That's what I mean. For every law there is on the books, you can usually find at least two that contradict it. Nothing about the judicial system is meant to be easily understood. Can I ask you, I want to ask you a couple questions about the documentary, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. I was saying, like, I've been following your journey since I was, like, a teenager. and But, like, another person whose journey I've been following since I was a teenager, I guess, then is, like, Pam Hobbs. Mm -hmm. And to see the way that she is in West of Memphis versus the Paradise Lost documentaries is, like, night and day. And I remember, I also had not seen this movie in a long time. 
I've seen it many times, but I hadn't seen it in a long time. And I I remember when we first see Pam Hobbs in West Memphis, I was like, are we allowed to like her? I really like her now, you know? And same same with... Um, Sean Mark Byers. Mark Byers. Mm-hmm. Like him or not, I don't know. But like he's definitely, his journey has been a very bizarre, interesting one as well. How do you feel when you hear them talking about your innocence? And do you now, as opposed to before, and do you have any relationship with the families? I don't really have any relationship right now. We did whenever I first got out just because we were doing like a lot of uh, press stuff for the documentary, uh, the West of Memphis. And uh, a lot of people wanted to talk to her. They wanted to talk to John Mark Byer. So a lot of times we would end up, you know, all going to interviews together. Uh, there were times. Oh my God. Yeah. We would do interviews together. We, at night after it was all over, we would go to dinner together sometimes. No. Oh my God. One night we were at dinner and Pam Hobbs actually even gave me um, a gold pocket watch that the family had got together and bought and just wanted me to have as like a peace offering. Damien Nichols, you're going to make me sob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we did have a relationship for a while, but you know, it's like just trying to get our lives together out here and move on and, you know, things change. And I mean, I'm sure I know the answer to this question, but like, do you forgive them? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think most people, I really don't think most people understand what the justice system is like and, and how, uh, manipulative it can be you know so so a lot of times if people tell you we have the person that committed this crime most people are going to believe them it's going to be your natural instinct so how can you blame them for that I said that when we were doing our recordings, like trying to have some grace for the families early on where it's like, I always say when in our, our job is so weird because by the time we are talking about something, we have all the information mm-hmm. because they're making the documentary about it, you right. know? And like along the way, the people in the documentary, sometimes we have no grace for them because we forget that they're just, they're just getting the information that the powers that be are giving them. You exactly. Know? Yeah. yeah. Plus you have to keep in mind that they're, they're not in their normal mind state you know whenever they're being told this they are in a highly susceptible mind state on top of that because they're going through you know tremendous emotional and and mental and spiritual trauma it's like they're going through something that you know shakes them to the core of their being so it's not like they're going to even be in a shape in enough shape or condition psychologically to to like look at the puzzle pieces of the the murder case of their kid and figure out if someone's telling them the truth or not. Yeah. You know, when you're watching Pam Hobbs, like, fall on the cement in the, you know, wherever she was when she find, when she found out that her son was dead mm-hmm. back in the day, like, that is just so hard to watch, you know? Yeah. I just think it says so much to her journey that she's that woman who really, the entire world fell out from under her, so much so, phys- like, m- metaphorically and, and physically and literally, that she collapsed to the ground, her whole world shattered, and then here she is saying, I mean, actually saying, I know in my heart that the men in prison didn't do this. Like, that, yeah. to, to really, I mean, it's so easy to to sleep at night and feel better telling yourself that, justice was served Mm -hmm. so for her to go through that horrifying moment that we all saw and to like three you know paradise lost one two and three go through like they absolutely did it to now be so willing to sit in front of amy berg and say they didn't do this for john mark byers to be burning photos of you in Mm -hmm. the woods damien and and, like saying all this shit to then like heckling people outside the courthouse about who really did it and saying the words i believed what the state told me i mean these people could have easily run away or 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 said no i'm gonna die on this hill absolutely not i look crazy in paradise lost Mm -hmm. too like i like that's that that footage of me burning images of of damien jesse jesse and jason lasts forever Mm-hmm. He easily yeah. could have committed to that, but to change <sighs> that so publicly is amazing. Imagine the person who watches Paradise Lost 1 and 2 and then never watches another documentary about the case ever again, you know? Like, they think John Mark Byers did it, number one. <laughs> well, keep in mind, that was true for me also. Like, at the time we were going to trial, the attorneys that I had at the time, they told me, yeah, we're pretty sure John Mark Byers did it. So right. the whole time... The, the first, you know, what is it, 15 years that I'm in prison, I'm convinced that John Mark oh, Byers wow. is the person who carried out the murders that I'm sitting in prison waiting to die for. 
So, yeah. there, you know, there was that whole weird element of it, too, of, of, you know, coming to terms one day with, oh, I guess I was wrong. Yeah. So yeah. it also makes you realize, like, with the families, it's like, it, you know, I didn't understand what was good. Like, I had to change what I thought. You know, you just realize yeah. that's yeah. the nature of the situation. Yeah. A lot of people always ask us, like, what's the best documentary to watch about this case? And I always say Paradise Lost walked so that uh, West of Memphis could run. Essentially, we're here because of Paradise Lost. But it was happening in real time. Mm -hmm. So West of Memphis is the most cohesive um, pulled back lens. But it's also happening in real time because it follows you home. Mm -hmm. So that I always say, like, I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from Joe and Bruce and what they did with Paradise Lost. We wouldn't be here without it. But if you really want to not go, like, for v- lack of a much better term, on a wild goose chase following John Mark Byers or something else, like, watch West of Memphis and you'll you'll get it all. There. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the I, I think, you know, really Paradise Lost is a huge part of what saved our lives. You know, yeah, if it yeah. w- if it wasn't for that documentary, they would have probably murdered me within the first handful of years that I was there. That documentary oh my extended my life. It gave me time to actually work on the case. So I, I still see that as I-, I can't even describe how big a part of the reason that I'm breathing right now. You know, even doing this interview or, or anything else in the world. Um. But the thing with it, I guess, what you're talking about, the, the the wild goose chase with John Mark Byers and stuff like that, you know, it was very much also like a product of its time. You know, it was being recorded in real time as things were unfolding. So I can see the value also in that it, it kind of preserves what everybody was thinking and what everybody was feeling and what the energy of the situation was like at that moment, even if it all did turn out to be a bunch of crazy drama later. Um, it, at least it was still all preserved for people to, you know, see what everybody's lives looked like at that time period when everybody was going through this. You know, West of Memphis, I'm going to ask you this question in the in the most plain way I can. And please just be like, we're not girl. We're not talking about that. If mm-hmm. that's if that's the answer. OK, the West of Memphis um, points to Terry Hobbs as a good suspect for this murder. I'm wondering if you agree with that assessment of the documentary you know that's one of those things that um it's really hard to say just because number one like i said a while ago i'd already been pointed falsely in the direction of john mark byers i mean yeah there are a lot of really weird you know factors around terry hobbs uh, and a lot of it that was never even released to you know the media or anything else like we had hired private investigators to find out a lot of things that, you know, came away looking kind of weird, but not enough that you could ever, you know, use anything to pinpoint someone with, you know, what, what do they call it in court? The certainty, the, the beyond a reasonable doubt sort of thing. Yeah. So I've yeah. always been wary of, um, you know, saying this is the guy that I think did it because honestly, I don't know. <laughs> because you barely know anybody who's been falsely accused of this murder. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> you barely I, know anybody. You, you can count them on one hand. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But this is why yeah. it would have been so important to do that DNA testing is because we could have right? once and for all said yay or nay. And, you know, if he's not, then he's still kind of walking around with this shadow over him at the same time. So it seems like he would want it to be done, too. I would guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who, who knows? Maybe if I talk enough shit about him, he'll sue me and then we'll get him deposed again. <laughs> oh. And then I'll be the new Natalie Maines. I was going to say, can I ask you a question that has nothing really to do with the case? Mm-hmm. What is Queen Natalie Maines really like? She is absolutely amazing and completely normal, which is something <laughs> I stopped looking for in celebrities a long time ago. You know, it's it's like any any you usually know there's going to be something weird going on there, and not necessarily that it's always even their fault. It's like they're forced into these weird ass lives that they uh-huh. have to become weird to adapt and and be able to keep living. So you end up with some strange people sometimes. But she is completely and absolutely normal, and she's one of those she's one of those few people that you feel like if you have your back against the wall. Or if you really need something, if you call her, 
she would do whatever she could to help you. She would do whatever she could to be there. I mean, she's got great taste in lawyers. We, like, watching the deposition of Terry Hobbs, but from those two lawyers, who we never see, by the way. I wish we could have, like, seen the lawyers' faces. (laughs) That is some of the most compelling. You know, GP and I have done 800 documentaries. That has got to be some of the most compelling minutes of a documentary I have ever seen. Oh, can I finish? Wait, can I finish? Or also, oh, is that that funny? Is that funny, Terry Hobbs? But, you know, on the on the line of celebrities, something that I've always thought about you is that, like, you came out of jail and you were instantly super famous. So, like, how, what was that transition like? But, but like, coming off of death row just in general and then, like, all of a sudden being, I mean, you've talked about this a little bit about being on the road and your speaking engagements, but, like, you know, they're, they're, like, you must get recognized everywhere you go. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't bother me anymore i think in the beginning yeah i I don't think that world is a good thing it's not you know it's not a good place at least for me from my own perspective like you know just the way it all operates and and how people are almost like beating themselves to death on this grind you know you've always got to do the next thing and you're only as relevant as you know your last thing and, and all this kind of stuff i think the person who described it who summed it up best is one time Dave Navarro said that he stopped doing interviews with certain forms of media just because it was like the only thing they wanted to do was read a Wikipedia article about you and then ask yeah. you a question designed to get you to say the same thing that they just read. So he's like, why are yeah, you wasting yeah. both of our times? So, you know, there's a lot of that sort of weird stuff in that world that people don't think about. You know, when people think about the world of celebrity, they think it's like you're driving around in a a limousine with a chandelier hanging from the roof or something, you know, they don't realize yeah. like what it looks like behind the scenes. And I just realized that I do not enjoy that life. I don't want that life to me. It's, it's fucking terrible to be honest, Yeah, <laughs> but I didn't know that yeah. in the beginning and in the beginning, you know, just due to ha- stuff like having to promote the documentary, you, you find yourself getting pulled into all these different worlds that you don't understand. You know, it's like, you know, I'm fresh out of prison and I'm at Sundance as a producer on a documentary. And it's like, it just, it, it, it wasn't good for me at all. Yeah. I, yeah. I realized that that's just not a world that I have any interest in. It doesn't, you know, I think it, as a society, we kind of get that world dangled before us like a carrot on a stick. Like, this is what you want to be. This is where you want to be. Even if it's only, you know, Facebook famous, you know, even if it's not movie star famous, whatever it is. Yeah. It's like they we chase that thinking it's going to give us something that we don't already have. And, and I don't th- and I think that there are some people, you know, I think we're all here to create in some way. And different people are going to be comfortable using different mediums in creating. Some people are going to be at the top of their game and happy as hell as a farmer where they're actually growing stuff with their hands. For other people, I think they are going to be, you know, that's their will being a movie star. That's their will being a TV star. That's their will being a singer. They do it. And it's like they were custom made to fit into that life and be able to thrive and grow in it. Uh, and, and all good form. If that's your thing, do it. But for me, I just realized it, it gave me an introduction to that world a little bit. And I realized this isn't a thing that's for me. Yeah. I think a, a little bit too, because I, I remember I, I sort of, I would play the role of, so sorry, but Damien has to go now because mm-hmm. everything is so beautifully personal to you, Damien. So when people are so connected and want to tell you their life story, you listen and you take that energy on and it's exhausting, but you don't, you feel bad because they came to your show, they came to your class. And so not, you don't want to be rude. Like they're pouring their heart out to you. But I remember we would teach a whole tarot class or you would do a whole, or we would teach a whole, like you do energy work, which is exhausting for you anyway. And then everyone wants to stay and nicely, like very nicely take up another 45 minutes of your time with something that really means a lot to them. And so because you're so 
your heart is gigantic and you just you really do care and want to listen like there were times where I remember like Lori would give me the high sign and I'd of course nicely say like we got oh the car is here or we got to go or just yes. get you like pull you out of it so you can recharge in some kind well, of way. Well a lot of people what they don't understand in situations like that you know they think that they're going to bond with you by, you know, it's like you're say if you like, I did book signings where I would end up talking to like 850 people a night sometimes. So wow, if, even if it's only 200 out of 850, that they have this idea that they want to bond with you by telling you whatever traumatic thing happened to them. So there's actually yeah. a term for it. They call it trauma dumping. It's like whenever, and, and keep in mind, I was fresh out of prison. I'm, in the process of having a nervous breakdown from all the sensory yeah. stimulation and being introduced to this new world and everything else. And then you're dealing with the trauma dumping on top of that, you know, like night after night where it's like, not only yeah. are you dealing with your own trauma, but you're having the, this other energy that people are kind of heaping on you. Sometimes you're trying to deal with that as well. And it's, it can be absolutely crushing to be under the weight of it at times. Yeah. I can't even imagine that. Yeah. I think, you know, honestly, what though, is your life now? The only thing I would add now, though, is I would say over the past couple of years, and this is this is one of the reasons that I've been a little bit hesitant about uh, even doing interviews or anything about the case anymore, stuff like that. It's because I've finally gotten to a place in my life where it's kind of like that is not the thing that most people who recognize me on the street or who come up to me to talk to me that almost completely died away you know a few years ago now for the most part wow. it's all people who are interested in you know the stuff that i teach now the books that i write yeah. now the classes that i'm doing now so you know there was a transition point where it became to be more about the stuff that was meaningful to me and the stuff that that fueled my soul to be able to talk about and share with people and stuff like that. So it, it really did make me kind of wary of even, you know, like opening this Pandora's box, like with the lawsuit and everything else about this case, because, you know, everybody's going to want to talk about it again. And it kind of takes yeah. the shift off of your life's work and brings it back to something else that wasn't always fun to to wade through. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what is your life now? What what do you do all day? Like, what you know, what sort of motivates you? What are your passions? Well, I mean, pretty much what saved my life while I was in prison, which is Western hermeticism, you know, ceremonial magic. You know, by the time I got out of prison, I was doing these practices for up to eight hours a day. And these were things that I got far, far more effect and benefit out of than even, you know, Eastern traditions like Zen. Uh you know, I, I received ordination in the Rinzai Zen tradition of Japanese Buddhism while I was in prison. I, I had a, a Zen teacher that would come from a 300-year-old temple in Japan back and forth to the de to death row Wow! To, to teach me. But even under that amount of guidance and with, you know, all of that, I still feel like I have experienced far more change, positive change in myself and in my world due to the Western practices. So that's what it is that I share with people most of the time. Um, and, and, and I usually do that. I found somebody told me, you know, I am horrendous when it comes to technology of any sort, but somebody came to me one day and said, have you ever heard of Patreon? And this was about like maybe four years ago. And I had never heard of it at the time. And they're like, well, you should really do this. You know, you should get on here because it gives you a platform to talk about whatever it is that you want to talk about, you know, what's important to you. And if people find it interesting, then it provides a source of income at the same time. That ended up being a way to like connect with a community that actually was excited and passionate about the same things that I was. So it gave me a whole new lease on life, you know, a whole new direction to be able to go in. You know, it, it went out from there and I started, you know, traveling around and doing classes at, you know, different retreat centers, stuff like that. And the, it ended up with the things that I love, the things that I am passionate about, passionate about absolutely consumed my life. So pretty much all of my life now is 
ceremonial magic in one way or another, whether it's doing, you know, live stream classes on Patreon or whether it's doing, you know, talking to people that I tutor one-on-one, whatever it is, it's like that pretty much consumed my whole life. And that's what it is that I do. Um, I have a third book on the subject. This one co-written with Lori uh, coming out in spring of next year, and it will be called uh, Rituals and Essential Grimoire. And it's basically about turning every aspect of your life into a ritual that forces you to pay attention to it and, and kind of funnel divine energy into it so that you're not just, you know, going through one day after the other and, and everything passing by you and you're not really experiencing life until you get to the very end and realize, oh, it's over. So what do we let me ask you, what do we do in terms of getting things done? Because I've been making phone calls to people and they just give me the runaround. So I would love to know what because what I do is I call and I'm like, hey, I just whether it's the governor, whether it's the West Memphis Police Department, just I'm just like asking for information Mm -hmm. that they should have already given us. So I just call as if I have every right to, which I guess I do. But I'm just like, hi, I'm just following up on that motion that was submitted. And Dave, it's so funny how they're like, say that name again. It's Eccles, you said. And I'm like, are you telling me you don't like, oh, my God, it's maddening. Yeah, I saw you. You got blocked by the governor already. Good work, GP. <laughs> well, you know, I do what I can. But so when I call up and they're like, wait, what? And they put you on hold. Like, people are sitting here, right? And they are getting riled up, which is exactly what we want. So what do they do with that? Like, what do we ask for when we call other than just like, we're just following up? Like, what do we say? This is something that I am not 100% certain on because I have never been over this aspect. I mean, like whenever all this stuff was going on when I was in prison, there were people out here that were pretty much acting like generals of an army. You know, they would tell people, write postcards and get them to here, or we're going to have a protest on the steps of the Capitol this week, be here at this time. And there were all these kind of masterminds behind it, you know, getting things done. I am the wrong person to ask. (laughs) My my job basically is to be where they tell me when they tell me to be there. Um, But I I think you have had good ideas in the past, the stuff you were put out of uh, uh, the people you were saying right to, or you were given the addresses, you were given the phone numbers, because the thing about that is they have to keep records of that stuff. Like if you write a letter to whoever right. it is, to the governor, to the prosecutor, to the attorney general, that has to go into a file. So you're creating, you know, this, this record that lets them see that people are paying attention to it. Same way if you make a phone call about it. Someone has to document the fact that that happened. So you're contributing to them having to make a paper trail and seeing, you know, that people haven't forgotten about this. So I would say write to the addresses that you are already posting. And I keep saying write. I keep, you know, kind of forgetting that we live in a digital world now where people could also probably do this stuff on, you know, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and stuff like that as well. Um, but I am pretty much the absolute last person in the world that can tell you what those things are. Okay, well, I will lead this charge. We ride at midnight. <laughs> we're making phone calls. We're tweeting. We're not being dicks about it. We're calling and saying, hey, I just I'm uh, I haven't heard anything about that motion that was filed. And I'm just curious if the state is going to respond in any yeah. way. Thank you. And then. That's I, that's that's been my I mean, it got me blocked by the governor, but that's sort of my thing. And, you know, it's always I think you could also say if you wanted to just something like you you are in support of this DNA testing being done uh, so that we can finally see, you know, people throw around the word justice. And I don't think you're, there's any such thing as justice in this situation. Nothing they do is going to bring any of those kids back. Nothing they do is going to give 20 years of my life back. You know, nothing they do is going to fix all the trauma that this situation has um, created for pretty much everybody involved with it, which is what justice means, you know, to even it out, to, to make it balanced. I don't think that's possible, but I do think it's possible that we can finally, everyone involved can have a sense of closure. And that's kind of what we're working towards right now is tell them you would like to have a sense of closure out of it. And you believe, I guess I'm asking, do you believe that this case is solvable and that we can, you know, sooner than later know what happened? 
I think if you're talking about just do I think it could potentially be solved just through things like testing and stuff like that? Yes. But, you know, as for whether they're going to fight it or go through with it or, you know, this would not be the first case that they had deliberately destroyed physical evidence. in. you know, when I was on death row, there was a guy, another guy there on death row that ended up getting off because the West Memphis police department destroyed evidence in his case. At the time that I was arrested, the entire West Memphis police department was under investigation by the FBI. So, you know, this is, wow. Yeah. This is a, a really shady place. That's not, you know, used to having a bunch of attention directed to them. So when you add in all of those things, you know, is it possible that they could destroy evidence? Yes. Which would prevent us from ever having a sense of closure. Um, I, I really do think it's just kind of a wait and see situation. You know, it, it's hard to say just because there's so many factors and variables in motion. And it's like my grandmother would say when I was a kid, man proposes, God disposes. So <laughs> we'll just have to wait and see. Um, I'm Just my last question is, are you still in touch with Jason and Jesse? Are, are you guys like, what's that relationship like? Not really. Uh, the last time I saw them, I think the last, let me think. I think one night whenever we went to dinner with Pam Hobbs and her family and John Mark Byers and his family, I think Jason and Jesse were both there also. So, and that would have been within the first two years that I was out. The time kind of time is very strange for me out here. Um, Yeah, I'm sure. But it's been, we just kind of, you know, Jesse still lives in the same trailer park he did in West Memphis whenever we got out of prison. He takes care of, I think up until very recently, he was taking care of his dad who had Alzheimer's. And from what I had heard, like his dad had actually even called the cops a couple of times and said, there's somebody in my house. And the cops would have to show up and and explain to him, no, that's your son. Oh, God. I think he died recently. I'm not 100% positive. I don't know. So I don't know what Jesse Miskelly is floating around out there doing. Jason, the last I had heard... This was, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago. He lived in Seattle for a long time. Almost the whole time we had been out, he lived in Seattle. And I think a couple of years ago, he moved down to Texas uh, and lives in Austin, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. Wow. Well, I mean, that's those are all the questions I have. It is, for me, such a deep honor to meet you. And, you know, thank you for for spending this time with us and, and answering these questions, what revisiting that documentary was wild. I hadn't seen it. I saw it once at a screening that you were at and you did a talk afterwards and I'd seen it again since then, but it is, I cannot believe what you have lived through. Like what an, what an, what an amazing human being you must be. Thank you. He's okay. Like he's fine. Uh. Didn't you miss this Damien, this banter? Yep. I always say she's the little sister I never wanted. That's right. (laughs) Well, I love you so much. Thank you for doing this, for wanting to do this. And um, I just, you know, I'm here for you always. So anything. Of course. And it's actually fun. I would not be entirely opposed to doing this again at some point. Look, there are updates happening again, leading the charge. We ride at midnight. Let's see what happens. There are more (laughs) things going on. I'm happy to be this mouthpiece. Um, you guys, thank you so much for hearing our episode with Damien Eccles. I want to reiterate, Damien has a Patreon. What does he do on the Patreon? He does a whole, just check it out. There's a whole ton of stuff there. Check it out. It's patreon.com slash Damien Eccles. I was looking it up. It's like there's art and there's writing workshops and there's all kinds of stuff you can do, like just to interact with Damien. So I think that's very cool. You know, we love the Patreon. Yeah. He does like tarot readings and stuff. He's very accessible there. It's very, very cool. And also I, I had like all my notes prepared, but I realized there are a lot of updates of things that we talked about in his case but it's it's changing every day so just like yeah. follow Damien on Twitter follow me if you want for more just like rage about the case um, but we I can't update you to the moment because by the time you hear it it'll be out of date so just keep yeah. following along with all of us and we'll we'll keep you posted when, when we know you'll know how about that thanks for checking this out you guys go listen to our two parts on West of Memphis if you haven't already yeah. uh, and we'll see you next week yeah I mean come on little sister he never wanted thanks I I best compliment <laughs> best compliment I could ask for. you guys are adorable bye everybody thanks bye <laughs> 